Inheritance Written by Jeremy C. Schofield Original Music by Josh Fisher Narration and Sound Design by Alex Schiffer Episode 6 Stakes 1. The smell of blood and whiskey is still on my hands as I hop into the Taurus and head over to my interview with the professor. I manage to slice myself open while cleaning up the mess I created as Jess snuck out with my money and my gun this morning. Part of me wants to track her down and prevent whatever stupidity she is getting herself into. Another part of me wants to call the AFPD, report the gun as stolen, and wash my hands of the whole sordid mess. I'm furious with myself for allowing her to crawl back into my bed and complicate my life yet again, and worried sick that she's going to get herself killed. The course of true love ne'er did run smooth on all that. So instead, I head up to the heights, hoping that work will take my mind off my troubles. My route through the early morning mist takes me to a recent subdivision in the Heights, filled with homes that were built for local dual-income families before the bubble burst in 08. Now there is a strange effect through the neighborhoods. I will pass five or six well-manicured homes, then one with a dead lawn, or boarded over doors and windows with a not-for-sale residence sticker plastered over the front door. These are abandoned homes left behind by those who could no longer make their mortgage payments. Some are used as temporary refuge for the homeless, others as labs for drug dealers, creating their own product. Many are left forever empty, with the sound of dripping water and the ever-strengthening smell of mold the only residents. Given the difficulty Ash Falls residents have in leaving the city, I wonder where the owners could have gone to. Then I remember our suspicions that Annis Black had been culling and sacrificing members of our local population, and I can't help but shudder. Landscaping in our town tends to involve large lawns, trellises with abundant vines, and twenty-foot-tall trees. So the professor's home stands out like a sore thumb in this neighborhood. The yard is a mixture of red and gray gravel with some large boulders and two of the biggest cacti I have ever seen thrown in for good measure. It is as if someone had taken a chunk of the Arizona desert and slapped it into his front yard. I leave behind my valise and the judge, grab a notebook and a waterproof leather portfolio, and head out into the drizzle. I follow a path of circular flagstones set every few inches into the gravel, leading up to the front door each inset with a different design. Here a Zia symbol. There a roadrunner. There a strange figure that looks like a long-haired hippie playing the flute. Bemused by my anti-Pacific Northwest focus on the front yard, I duck under the portico and ring the doorbell. When he answers, I am struck by how normal he appears. Not much taller than I am. The professor is wearing what passes for casual clothing among the educated, a faded polo shirt, dockers, and slip-on canvas shoes. The musk in his cologne is so overpowering I have to fight back the urge to sneeze. Hello, professor. I stick out my hand and dictate in every protocol manual and good manners article. He smiles broadly as he shakes my hand. He must pay his dentist a fortune. His smile would look good on a supermodel. Or a shark. Welcome, Brian, welcome. Please, come inside. He gestures me into his house, and I step in. Glad to step out of the wet. The inside of the house looks... normal. Not what you would expect from someone who has single-handedly put together a ruling council of supernatural beings. There is a focus on southwestern art on every visible wall. A small living room set sits to my left, with a larger dining room table behind it. Looking out into the backyard through a sliding glass door, I notice that the backyard has no fence or landscaping like the front, 
and the door slides up against a narrow piece of glass built around a pet door. Fido or Whiskers do not put in an appearance, however, as he waves me toward the loveseat and makes himself comfortable on the couch. Well, Brian, I would ask why you are here, but I already know the answer, I suppose. I am the final suspect of your whodunit. I open my mouth to make a sarcastic reply, and then stop myself, remembering Clarence's warning to treat his man with respect. Though it pains me to do so, I decide that discretion is the better part of valor. It also occurs to me that I must look odd, sitting with my mouth halfway open. Yes, Professor, but at this point, I think I have more or less eliminated you as our suspect. He smiles again. Ah, well. May I ask which of my colleagues you have selected? I shake my head. I think that information ought to be reported to the whole group at once, Professor. He nods as I say this, expecting my answer. Quite proper, of course. I didn't even offer you anything. Brian, could I get you a drink? I just made coffee. Coffee would be great, thanks, I reply. He bounces up off the couch and heads into the kitchen. I take a moment to look over the books on the coffee table and the nearest bookshelf. Anthropology, sociology, and even some books on religion and mythology. Nothing you wouldn't expect to find in the home of a college professor, I suppose. He deposits a mug on the coffee table in front of me, then also drops a couple of creamers, which I ignore. Coffee should be taken full force, or not at all, in my opinion. After a sip of the excellent brew, I put the cup down on a coaster, featuring artwork of a dreamcatcher, and look back across at him. Excellent coffee, Professor. Thank you. Now, to begin, let me ask you the same question I asked everyone else. Where were you the night of the attack on Annis Black's home? He leans back, comfortable. In fact, I was meeting with some colleagues in Eugene at the university. We are developing a joint curriculum project between our institution and the university there. I stayed overnight and returned early the next morning. I can provide documentation if you would like. I smile, but the information hits me like a freight train. Apparently, the professor is free to come and go from here as he pleases, unlike the rest of us. Why him? I pick up my mug again and take another sip, buying time to reorder my thoughts. That's what I thought, Professor. Out of everyone on your little committee, you seem the least likely to be leading an armed assault on Mr. Black's compound. Do you have any personal thoughts on which of your colleagues might be responsible? His brow furrows as if he is giving this throwaway question some serious consideration. Well, of course, any of my colleagues might resort to violence if they thought there was some material benefit to be gained from it. I must admit, though, I was surprised that Annis was our victim. I would have expected any of the other three to be more likely to be assassinated than he. I look at him curiously. You talk about them being violent pretty casually, Professor. Doesn't the whole thing bother you? Since I now know that he had helped set up the circle... I can't help but sniff around a bit. Professional reflex, I suppose. I am careful to avoid mentioning the fact that I am aware of his central role in the creation of the Circle. He doesn't seem to be at all bothered by the question, though. Instead, he leans back and looks closely at me before speaking. Yes, I suppose I can understand why this must appear a bit mysterious to someone in your position, Brian. But I felt that having the parties meet regularly was preferred to the atmosphere as I found it when I had arrived here a decade ago. Communication is key to the reduction of conflict. And how does a professor manage that? I blurt out, unable to control myself. At least I managed to compose myself before I follow up with an observation that a college professor should have no juice with criminal masterminds and creatures of the night. Brian, a little history if I may. I realize with a sinking feeling that I have just triggered his professor switch, and I can now expect to sit through a lecture. Sure enough, he stands and begins to pace back and forth behind his couch. Maybe he didn't want to break his flow, 
and go fetch a lectern from elsewhere in the house. All the social constructs we understand as part of our human existence make some sort of sense sociologically. Religion exists due to the need of our tribal leaders to appeal to a higher authority that may or not be disputed with. Our racial prejudices arise from tribal defensive mechanisms that ensure the survival of the species. Sexual mores derive from the need of a civilization to reproduce themselves more quickly than others, in order to compete for limited resources. Even our legends and myths come from long-forgotten necessities for development as a species. I sit and nurse my coffee as he warms to his subject, all too aware that I am going to be trapped here for a while. Brian, when I was younger, I used to be fascinated by horror stories, not slasher films or the like, but the oldest stories that have come down to us over hundreds or even thousands of years. The concepts of vampires, demons, and human sacrifices were of great interest to me because they all seemed to center on a single subject. Blood. I put up a hand in an effort to forestall the flow of words. Professor, let's just say that I have been enlightened about the importance of blood to the human condition by another source. My question is, how did you find out? By willing to ask questions no one else would ask, Brian. Why did the ancient civilizations of Central America require such copious amounts of bloodshed? Why is almost all of human history built around gods that demand human sacrifice? Why the existence of historical figures like Vlad the Impaler or Elizabeth Bathory? I was unwilling to ascribe these tales to the ignorant bloodthirst of our ancestors. Somewhere, there was an answer to this question. Why this focus on blood? My research led me to a trail of exsanguinated corpses originating in Maine and leading all the way across the country, until at last I arrived here, in Ash Falls, more than a decade ago. I exhale and nod, understanding at last. You mean you discovered the only vampire preserve on the planet that must have done some amazing things to your brain? He smiles and plunges onward, caught up in his subject. It is indeed, Brian. Imagine, right under our noses for all these millennia, an entire species resembling us, but treating us as prey, as members of a worldwide herd. The implications were staggering, not only to human biology, but to our understanding of history, social development, religion. This information could change the world. I snort, and not in a good way. His shoulders slump, and he smiles as he returns to his seat on the couch. Yes, you have reached the crux of the matter, Brian. If I were to attempt to reveal or publish this information, I could very well be responsible for destroying all of the human social order across the planet. I couldn't bear that burden. Part of me wants to laugh out loud at his ego. Part of me thinks he might be right. So. You inserted yourself into the power structure here to save us all? How did you do that, by the way? He smiles and leans in as if sharing a secret. How else? Research. I investigated the drug trade. I talked to prostitutes. I studied local politics and followed the money within our economy. After a few years, I had identified Ray, Annis, and Rowan as the central figures managing the city. I spoke with each of them and pointed out the benefits of not working at cross-purposes. I frown. And Leonardo? How did he get involved? He also frowns. There was my only failure, Brian. I had anticipated the entire city would be under the control of a sort of dark master, an undead being of incredible age and power. Instead, I found a large number of less powerful vampires here with no central organizing authority, far too many to be supported by our human population. Out of the ones I made contact with, Leonardo was the only one who had seemed to have a vision for reshaping Ash Falls. I can't help but shake my head in wonderment at his drive and ego. So, 
The Circle of Five was created as a study group of sorts. Do they realize that they're being studied? He laughs good-naturedly, as if diminishing the thought. The concept of a project to study these extra-normal creatures is a charming one. But as I already stated, where would I publish it? I am driven by curiosity, I assure you. I sit for a moment, trying to take in all this new information. Then I stand up and extend my hand once again. Thank you for your time, Professor. And thank you for the background info. I never went to college, but now I'm thinking I should have. He laughs as he shakes my hand, then begins walking towards the door. Feel free to come and audit a class any time, Brian. Was there anything else I could help you with? I stop, giving him my best exit then pause, learned from watching Columbo reruns. Actually, there's one last thing, if you don't mind. Certainly. Why do you think they're all migrating here in the first place? His face looks somber. I think that is something you would have to ask one of them, Brian. I have never discovered the answer. I nod at him, and then step out into the rain. 2. As I get back in the Taurus, I reflect that I now know two things. First, the professor is a lying snake. Any low-end used car dealership would be happy to have him on staff. Second, among the flood of information he unleashed on me, one piece stands out. If I want to find out what the heck is going on among the undead, I'm going to have to ask a member of the community. Just my luck. I happen to have an informant of sorts. Chatting with him always leaves me uneasy, though, and I do my best to save him for real emergencies. This seems to qualify. I drop by a local liquor store and pick up the items I will need to bribe my informant. Nothing that costs too much, at least not in cash. The cost to my soul, if I still have one, will be much higher than anything coming out of my wallet. But I have way too many balls in the air right now, and I need to get a few of these subjects done and dusted. The problem is chatting with Danny, my informant, is an awful lot like dealing with a genie from a lamp. He will give me the answer to three questions, no more, no less. I need to have the exact questions I want to ask nailed down before I even begin the process. On the corner of 48th and Honeysuckle is a string of older ramshackle buildings, most likely erected during the early part of the 20th century. The one I am looking for is a rundown bar with discolored windows and a dog's head hanging over the door. I have no idea what the interior looks like. I tend to do my drinking at home. Now, what I need is in the alley behind the bar. I park up the street from the bar, and then gather up the materials from the liquor store. I hop out and grab a stainless steel mixing bowl from the trunk, making sure to lock the car. This isn't the best of neighborhoods. Looking to the left and right, I head up beside the bar into the darkness behind. This dog-headed bar must have been here for quite a while, as one night over a century ago, a logger named Danny McElroy stumbled out of the bar blind drunk and decided to take a piss in the back. While he was there relieving himself, something happened to him, caving the back of his skull in, and now this place is the anchor to which his spirit is tied. What business his ghost feels like he still needs to accomplish in this world is beyond me, but if I bring the appropriate inducements he will come when I call. About ten feet away from the bar's back door is a dark stain on the pavement. Any normal person would think it is not significant, maybe the remains of an oil spill or the like, but I know from previous experience that this is a marker, a shadow showing a gateway to the other side that can be opened by use of the appropriate key. I know very little about the art of becoming a medium, but I do know two things. You have to be prepared to bargain, and you need to have access to gifts that the spirit wants. Since McElroy died blind drunk and pissing on the wall of this bar, determining the gifts he might desire required no great stretch of the imagination. I place the bowl on the ground and crack open the bottle of whiskey I purchased earlier and pour a small amount in. 
I then opened the pouch of loose tobacco I also bought and dropped some inside the bowl. I pull out my cell phone and start a nap running, then put it back in my pocket. All preparations made. I look either way to make sure no one is visible in the alley. Then I flick a disposable lighter and touch it to the edge of the bowl. A pale, translucent flame erupts on the surface of the liquid, casting sparks and smoke where the flames interact with the floating bits of tobacco. After a second or two, the smell of cheap whiskey and old cigarettes begins to fill the alley. A few moments later, something begins to form over the bowl. As the flames begin to die down, a visage forms in the smoke, looking for all the world like a face made of clear plastic wrap. The face appears to breathe once, twice, and then turns its empty eye sockets towards me. Brian, my lad, it seems an age since you were last here. My thanks for the sip and the smoke. What can I do for you? Given that I know from family research that Danny McElroy was born right here in Ash Falls, the affected and pronounced Irish accent is somewhat humorous. I must be very careful now. If I am so foolish to ask him meaningless questions, they will be held against the three he will answer. I'm well, Danny. I hope I do not interrupt anything important. The translucent face shakes its head. Just the usual, lad. Seeing the sights laying low. Avoiding conscription. I have no idea what he's referring to. Avoiding conscription. And this is the problem with contacting spirits from beyond the grave. Their perception of reality and ours aren't the same. But the fact that they have no real sense of time means that they often know things that happened in the distant past as if they were occurring in the present, and vice versa. Danny, I do have some questions. If you found my gifts acceptable. This is the key phrasing things that would otherwise be questions into declarative statements. The translucent face frowns and then nods. Of course, me boy. Is there any chance you would be sending the rest of that across to me now? I pour another small amount in the bowl, sprinkle more tobacco, and light it again. I have to use only small amounts at once. The last thing I want to be doing is interrogating a drunken spirit. The face grins all the more sinister because of how I can see the alley wall through it. I clear my throat, order my thoughts, and begin. Danny, within the last few days we've had some major incidents occur here in town. They've... He interrupts me, unable to restrain himself. Ah! You'd be referring to the death of Nergal. I tell you, son. His departure thundered through here like a runway lumber train. There are those that are still feeling the effects now, you may be sure. Not to mention the weakening of the Turlarang. I swear I can hear the capital letter dropping in place. I abandon my first planned question and step through the conversational door. Danny, on the other side, we don't know anything about Turlarang. Is this what keeps most of us from coming and going as we please here in Ash Falls? The glistening head nods. Oh my, yes, Brian. The Turlerang covers ash falls like a fog covers the coast. Only a few can see past it, and pass beyond it. It was created years before you were born by the five that consider themselves the true rulers of this city. To keep their worshippers where they could get to them. To keep them safe from the world outside. The flames from the burning alcohol are dying down, and I pour another small amount in the bowl causing a jet of flame to reach upwards and touch the bottom of his face. For a moment, I think he must be talking about the Circle of Five. Then I realize that he mentioned worshippers. He is referring to something much bigger and more sinister than our current Underworld Management Committee. If they seek worshippers, they must consider themselves gods. Do you know the names of these delusional spirits? Careful now, Brian. You are beginning to head into dangerous waters. These are not ghosts as you understand them. The spirits you are talking about are Tezcatlipoca, Supe, Hecate, Yama, and the slain Nergal. They are ancient and powerful, and should not be trifled with by such as you, laddie. I repeat the names, hoping that the recorder on my phone is getting all this. 
I know that I am way out of my depth here, other than Nergal. I have never heard of a single one of these names before. We have a coalition of dark and bloodthirsty gods calling the shots in Ash Falls. It was bad enough just thinking about Annis Black being some ancient deity. Now there are four more just like him, walking these streets. Last question, Brian. Make it a good one. Despite his apparent enjoyment of our conversation, I can't help but get the feeling that he thinks he's putting one over on me somehow. I prepare to ask him if he knows of a way this forbidding can be destroyed. Then, at the last second, I remember my commitment to Manny to prioritize the search for his daughter and change my mind. Danny, what do you know about a group of wolf and children being held against their will here in Ash Falls? I swear, it looks as though his face falls in disappointment. He pauses for a moment, then replies. I man. I know something about that. There is someone here who wants to talk with you. He disappears. And instead, I hear a voice in my head. Damn telepathy again. Hello? Can you hear me? A young voice. Tentative. Yes, I can hear you. Who am I speaking to? This is Victor Jr. of the Setting Sun Pack. I sigh, half in relief, half in disappointment. I have found one of the missing werewolf kids. On the negative side, since he is using a ghost spiritual conduit to speak to me, this means he is dead already. Hello, Victor. Your dad has me looking for you. What happened? A noise in my head that I don't recognize. Then I realize it was the sound of a wolf snuffling. Tell him I'm sorry. You were just messing around because we were bored. I take a deep breath, then plunge in. Are all three of you on the other side, Victor? No. Remy and Caitlin are still alive. I got killed because I fought back. Victor, I'm sure your dad will be proud to hear that you went down fighting. Where are Remy and Caitlin? Who is holding them? They are in a yard with some old burned out train cars, with a big warehouse and a trailer in the back, right along the river, almost under the freeway. How on earth the pack was not able to find their pups when they were a few blocks away from the docks is beyond me. Who did this to you, Victor? Vampires. They all called the main one Master, but one called him Master Leon when he wasn't around. Okay, Victor. Thank you. You can rest now. I will get your packmates out. Thank you. Tell my dad. The voice fades away before he finishes speaking. As much as I hope this means his spirit has been released, it also leaves me wondering what a son would have to say to his werewolf father in this instance. I will have to just make something up, I suppose. Just then, Danny's visage pops back up over the bowl, despite there no longer being a sacrifice in it. What happened there, Danny? I ask, not expecting a free answer. Bah! He has been pestering us for a couple days now, wanting us to let him know if anyone reaches through the barrier. I told him he could speak only if someone asked about him specifically. I should have known better. I sigh with relief. Danny, you did better than you know. Here, enjoy the rest. I pour the remainder of the bottle, better than half of it in the bowl, and light it on fire, then dump the rest of the tobacco on the surface. I then walk out of the alley, leaving the spirit drunkenly moaning and laughing in the alley behind me. 3. A meeting with the spirit of an alcoholic lumberjack puts me in a certain frame of mind, and as a result, I find myself looking for Cheryl. There is no answer at her home, so on a hunch, I drive over to the parking lot where her shop used to be. Sure enough, she's there, dressed in overalls and an enormous pair of waders. She is shuffling through the wreckage and ash that was once her business. I luck up the car and walk over to her, doing my best to avoid ash smudges on my second best pair of Levi's. As I do, I notice small details in the wreckage. A fragment 
shaped of what used to be a crystal ball, some burned feathers, and somehow, an almost perfectly preserved deck of tarot cards. I pick these up and hand them over to her without a word. She takes them and places them with some other items inside a huge black garbage bag. She then faces me, blowing some sweat-streaked hair out of her face. Well, did you find him? I blink, nonplussed. Find who, Cheryl? Her eyebrows come together in a frown beneath the bandana covering her jet black hair. I can't help but notice that her brown roots are beginning to show. It looks like Madame Rosa is on the bench for the time being. The thing that blew up my shop, Brian. Did you find him? Uh, actually, I haven't been looking for him, Cheryl. I've had a few other things on my plate. She shakes her head in exasperation. So you're letting a supernatural being wander the streets armed with an ancient artifact. Wonderful. So what have you been doing that is more important? I clear my throat, embarrassed. <clears throat> uh, well, among other things, I have been looking for the missing kids from your husband's pack. Her face softens for a moment, thinking of her own kids, no doubt, both away at boarding school. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Sorry, cleaning makes me grouchy. I nod, understanding. So where are you with reestablishing your business? She shrugs and then picks up a fragment of a book and throws it into the bag. I don't know, Brian. It just seems like so much work. I may just open a kiosk at the mall or something. I have to smile at the mental image of Madame Rosa being planted among the cell phone repair shops and cheap jewelry vendors. Maybe across from the Cinnabon franchise. Come on, Cheryl. You know that won't work. Your clientele requires an atmosphere. Surrounded by shattering teenagers isn't going to work. She grimaces. I know. Tony said the same thing. We started looking at properties yesterday. Our claims adjuster thinks we'll get the whole thing paid out. They're blaming a faulty gas main. She wipes her forehead with the back of her sleeve and then focuses on me. So, have you found them? I nod, somber. Yeah. I went to chat with Danny. Cheryl is the person who introduced me to Danny's spirit and the art of being a medium several years ago. Victor's kid took over the meeting and gave me a description of where they're at. Her face falls and her shoulders slump. Oh no. Poor Victor Jr. Are they all dead? He doesn't think so. He tried to fight back. Like father, like son, I guess. Victor will be proud, at least. What else did you learn? By now, I have started sifting through the ashes myself, not caring that I am going to have to take multiple showers later to get clean. I helped create this mess, so I should help clean it up. I hand her a book, with a charred cover, whose pages look more or less intact. We're under an enchantment here in Ash Falls. She looks exasperated as she puts the book in the bag, then ties it off. Well, no kidding, Brian. I hope you didn't give him a whole lot of whiskey for that information. I sneeze as a particle of ash makes its way up my nose. Excuse me. No, something more serious than that. Something called the Turlerang, maintained by five... Excuse me, now four beings with names made out of random Scrabble tiles. He talked about reining in their worshippers and keeping away outsiders. Do you remember any of the names, Brian? I recorded the whole thing on my cell phone. I repeated everything he said that sounded important. The voices of spirits sound like vague static when recorded. 
The way around that is to record yourself repeating anything of interest they might say. I was rather proud of that refinement to mediuming since I came up with it all by myself. Do you remember any of them? She repeats. Speaking with a slow and deliberate tone of voice you use when you are not sure if you are being understood. I flounder for a bit, turning to head back to the car for my cell phone, then turn back to face her. Hectate, I think, was one of the names he said. She shakes her head at me, like every teacher with a good-natured and diligent but stupid student. Hecate is an ancient Greek goddess, Brian. She is their goddess of witchcraft and ghosts. So, now we have one spirit from Sumeria and another from Greece. What the hell is drawing them here? And there are five of them, you say? Yeah, some kind of group of them. Like the Spiritual League of Nations maintaining this spell over Ash Falls. Keeping us from leaving. Drives folks from outside away. She has begun staring off into the middle distance, contemplating thoughts too big for my tired and alcohol-damaged brain. Then, she snaps back to reality. There was an altar in the Annis Black's basement, right? I nod. Yeah, broken in half. And there was another one in the hidden building we discovered down by the docks. They are using human sacrifices to power their enchantment. That would mean... Her voice trails off. I pick up the thought. That there is a total of five of these things here in the city. How are there five different evil cults sacrificing residents and no one is noticed? She shakes her head. I don't know, Brian. But I think we better find those kids sooner than later. I shake my head firmly. No. There will be a no we going to find those kids, Cheryl. As soon as night falls, I'm going to inform Ray and Rowan and let them handle it. Let them do some good for once, is my unspoken thought. She nods, surprisingly. I was prepared for an argument. Yes, of course. Victor will want to be involved in order to avenge his son. I'll go home and start doing some research, Brian. There has to be a way for us to communicate with Hecate or one of the others. We know their identities, and we have a focal point for one of them in that altar. I blink and swallow hard communicate with one of them. You want to summon one of these ancient spirits, Cheryl? Why? She looks me in the eyes, her expression hard as granite. Do you want to live under their thumbs forever, Brian? Of course not. Then let's find out what they want and start working to free this city. 4. I sit in the car, trying and failing to rub ash off myself when I hear my phone beep from inside my valise. I give up on my ruined shirt and pants and grab the cell phone. I don't recognize the phone number that my most recent call came in from. I start the car as I dial voicemail. Mr. Drake? Hi, this is Madeline from Mr. Casillas' office. Madeline? The gorgeous young woman with the fabulous pectoral tattoo. Oh yes, I remember her quite well. Anyway, you told me to call you if there was any trouble. I guess they figured out that I let you in the elevator the other day. They just told me I was terminated. No severance, no notice, nothing. Told me if I complained to anyone that I would regret it. I just figured you should know. You can call me here if you want to talk to me. Thank you. I dial her number and let it ring until it rolls to her voicemail. I hang up during her outgoing message. I hate phone tag. Besides, I already know what I need to do now. I drive home, change clothes, and throw my pants in the trash, assessing them as a total loss once I get a closer look at the bottom cuffs. I then gather up a couple of items that I might need, and look up an address on my cell phone. Downtown. Why am I not surprised? Ash Falls is not a big city by any means, 
and our downtown is half a dozen multi-story buildings that you wouldn't even notice in Los Angeles or Chicago. They do represent our only prestige addresses, though. In the firm of Stein, Penna, and Galloway is on the twelfth floor of our tallest building. I park my Taurus in the underground parking garage and then take the elevator up to the twelfth floor. I am met by an older, no-nonsense looking receptionist who is a resident to let me in. Sir, your name does not appear on the appointment calendar for today. I smile at the frowning gatekeeper like a valet at a red carpet event. I know, but I think Mr. Galloway would like to see me. She squints at me and then punches a button on her console. From around the corner comes a larger gentleman wearing a bad blazer and an earpiece. He sticks his hand out for my valise. Let me see what's in the bag, Drake. Huh? My reputation precedes me if this goon already knows who I am. I hand the bag over to him without a word. He takes a look inside and raises an eyebrow at me when he discovers the item I brought from home. Evidence, I tell him, hoping I sound conspiratorial. Mr. Galloway asked me to acquire it for him. The guard shakes his head, then hands me back my bag washing his hands of the whole matter. I turn to face the old battle axe and smile again. She puckers her lips into a sour persimmon expression, then lifts her headset and presses yet another button. Mr. Galloway, a Brian Drake is here to see you. I hear his voice respond. She nods, then hangs up the phone. Down the hallway to your right, Mr. Drake. Mr. Galloway is the second-to-last office on the left side of the hallway. I smile again, then walk down the hallway, stopping at the solid door with the Farnham Galloway Attorney at Law placard on the door. Thank goodness this office has not gone with the whole glass interior architecture. I need solid walls for what I think is about to go down. I open the door and step inside careful to close the door behind me. He sits behind his desk, a vista of the Umqua River Valley behind him, looking toward the west over the river as it winds its way to the coast. Mr. Drake, I assumed you would arrive, though I didn't think you would be here so fast. I treat my client's requests quite urgently, Mr. Galloway. Customer satisfaction is the key to success in a service-based business, wouldn't you agree? He shakes his head and snorts like a pig. I don't know what you came here hoping to get, Mr. Drake, but it won't happen. She's been fired for meddling in Mr. Castillus's personal affairs, and we owe her nothing. She's quite fortunate that we are not pursuing legal action against her. I nod and seat myself in one of his two leather-backed client chairs. Oh, I don't want you to give her her job back. I'm thinking more of a settlement for wrongful termination. Let's call it 250000 That should do nicely. He laughs out loud. Wrongful termination? She allowed you access to Mr. DeCostillis' private residence. At the least, she could be fired. Perhaps she should even be prosecuted as an accessory to your breaking and entry. I nod again as I pull the item out of my valise. It's a police evidence bag, made of clear plastic. The exterior is covered in lines meant to document an item description, case number, and the like. These lines are all blank. Inside the bag is a wooden stake, made of dark wood broken off and carved to a rough point. He rears back from his desk, looking at the stake, then recovers leaning back forward. Do you think that frightens me, Drake? It should be obvious that will have no effect on me. He gestures outside, where the sun is still shining over the river. I pull the stake out of my bag, making a show of it. Mr. Galloway, when I say wrongful termination, I mean that you terminated her after I went to all the trouble of telling you to leave her alone. I hold the stake up between us. 
Do you know what this is, Mr. Galloway? This is a fragment of wood from a thousand-year-old Jerusalem oak tree that was destroyed by lightning. Do you have any idea what powers it holds? His eyes fixate on the stake as he leans back in his chair as far as he can. Truth is, it is the lower end of a leg from one of my bar stools at the condo, destroyed and then sharpened with a kitchen knife. I don't even know if Jerusalem oak is a real tree. But if I don't know, I could be certain this worthless Dampier attorney doesn't know either. He recovers from his fascination with the stake and reaches for his phone. This is ridiculous. I'm calling security. I lunge across the table with lightning speed, catching his hand as it reaches for the phone with my left hand, and then slam the stake through the back of his right hand, pinning it to his desk. He mules in pain as I move around the desk and shove my forearm into his gasping mouth. Galloway, you have made a mistake here. You think that since you have whored yourself out to a vampire that you are now special? But you are not the only person in this room to be tied to a bloodsucker. His eyes grow even wider as he looks at me, focusing on the glowing tattoo on my neck. I reach over and twist the stake, turning it within the wound, and watch tears spring from his eyes. Now, you are going to have to report to your master and tell him that you have failed to frighten that poor girl, or me. He may choose to lend you his strength to repair this wound. He may not. But understand one thing. You will never be safe from me no matter what you do. Because the difference between you and I is that you care about your own survival. I step back, removing my arm from his mouth as he continues to stare at me in disbelief. I, on the other hand, don't give a damn if I live or die, which means that no matter what precautions you take, I can get to you. Are we clear? He nods then winces as he looks over at his damaged hand. He looks back at me. What do you want? He asks in a pain-saturated whisper. Just what I told you. She gets a quarter million dollar settlement from your misjudgment. After that, you leave her the hell alone. Are we clear? He nods, then his eyes narrow. And what about you, Drake? Do I leave you alone as well? I shrug as I gather up my valise. I can take care of myself. And Galloway. I would think twice before reporting this to the police. For one, you'll have to explain how your wound heals up so fast after you visit your master tonight. I place my hand on the door handle, preparing to exit. Then, you'll have to tell some cop how little Brian Drake drove a piece of solid wood through your hand and six inches into your desk. Good luck convincing anyone of that. With that, I exit, closing the door behind me. I walk down the hallway as fast as I can, and head back to the elevator. 5. Where does a person go after he has staked an expensive Dampier attorney to his desk? For me, the answer was clear. I had some answers to come up with, and despite the distraction of Madeline's crisis, I knew the next place I needed to go to find them. I put the Taurus in gear and headed over to the warehouses along the river, back to Cheryl's invisible warehouse. As I pull up near the warehouse, I notice the tinges of yellow on several of the trees along the street. Winter is coming and all that. I also notice Cheryl's minivan, parked a little closer to the warehouse door. I walk over to the driver's side and notice her sitting in the driver's seat with a notebook in her lap and a pencil between her teeth. The reddish-brown roots below the raven black tresses gave her a counterculture kind of look. With all that is going on, I wonder if she has even noticed. I knock on the window, and the glass pane slides down without her choosing to look over at me. 
Hello, Brian. What, no jumping in panic as I approached the car? I could feel you coming. The other day, I was so entangled with Tony and studying the building that I didn't notice you. I smile at being able to get her goat. So, obvious question. What am I doing here, right? I might ask the same of you. I rest my weight on the top of the doorframe and peek my head in the car. I don't even recognize the languages the books on the passenger seat are written in. I'm here because this is my last lead that doesn't involve Rowan and Ray. I am an investigator, you know. On good days, I investigate. So you are here because... Because I am tired of keeping my kids away from their home. They get to stay here for a few days at a time to make sure they don't get trapped here again. I'm never sure how long they are safe for. Ah, I think I may have the answer to that. I recount my conversation from last night with Clarence and his theory that the enchantment is renewed every month at the dark of the moon. She looks alarmed. Brian, that's tomorrow night! We don't have much time. Time to do what? I ask as she rolls up the window and climbs out of the van. Time to speak with Hecate and find out what it is she and these other godlings want. Godlings? I like that term so much better than gods. My musing on my preference is rudely interrupted by her determined march towards the broken door. Wait, we're doing this now? I ask. Yes, I'm glad you showed up. It must be fate. She flashes me a wicked smile. I take a deep breath and try to argue her out of this insanity then think for a moment about how many arguments I ever won with Jessica over the course of our marriage. Zero. I give up and follow her inside. It looks like no one else has been here to disturb the dust-filled room since we left our footprints all over it. I hear no alien voices arguing below us as we walk into the main room and walk towards the altar. The stone looks just like the broken one below the former home of Annis Black and I wonder if they came from the same source. There are grooves cut up and down in the center of the stone, and a single groove chiseled all the way around the edge, about six inches in, in a man-shaped silhouette. The grooves all head to the bottom of the stone, where the depressed angle would cause fluids to run down the bottom edge to be gathered in the circular hole below. It radiates dead cold as if it had been left in a meat locker for days. I look around the room. So, where is her idol? Like the one I brought you for Nergal. She inclines her head toward the far wall. I think it would reside there. But her worshippers don't leave it here all the time. I walk toward the far wall and notice a dark shelf recessed into the wall. Sure enough, the dust here is disturbed in an area that would indicate that something about 18 inches long and 5 inches deep has been placed here and then removed. So, how do we talk to her without it? I ask. Brian, her power should reside in the altar, not the idol. This is where her sacrifices take place, so I should be able to get her attention using the altar. Too slow. Too damn slow to prevent what Cheryl is about to do. Without warning, she produces a silver-bladed knife and slashes her own hand. Ow! She exclaims, squeezing the hand over the surface of the altar. I notice that they congregate in one of the grooves, but do not begin running down the surface, lacking the mass to create enough momentum to force their way downhill. Cheryl is looking at her hand in astonishment. This really hurts! I shake my head. Of course it does. Plenty of nerve endings in your palm. If you had asked, I could have told you several better places to stick a knife. She glares at me. If I had asked, you would have said no. I can't argue with that. I pull my shirt over my head. I then remove the knife from her hand and begin to cut the bottom six inches or so off my shirt to make a makeshift bandage for her hand until we get her to the hospital. I turn back to face her, shirt in one hand and sacrificial knife in the other, 
and notice her eyes are now shining with the golden glow. Hello, mortal, says the embodiment of Hecate. Six. She looks around her, taking measured breaths and turning in place. I am uncomfortably aware of Cheryl's figure now, the way this entity is wearing her skin, and I wonder how in the hell I am going to get out of this. She turns to face me, and I am awash with the scent of lilac. You are not my priest. Why have you summoned me? I look down at the knife in my hand. I have screwed the pooch here by taking the knife out of Cheryl's hand, it seems. What have you done with her? I ask, hearing and hating the fear in my voice. She still exists. I can feel her, beating against the walls of her mind, begging for release. I cannot take this body from her, it seems, only borrow it. But, because of what I have learned here, this experience of embodiment, I will grant you a fraction of time. Ask your questions, then. I swallow hard. Just return her to me, then we can talk. The thing wearing my best friend's body shakes its head. I will release her in due time. Do you have nothing you wish to know, then? She begins to unbutton the front of Cheryl's blouse, then brushes her chest up against mine. I look away, embarrassed. I never would have taken Cheryl for a Victoria's Secret kind of girl. If there's nothing you want, mortal, then we can spend our time in other amusements before I depart. Her hand reaches up and strokes the side of my face. Do you not desire this form? Why have you not taken her before now? Because she is not mine to take, godling. I make sure I put a little spite into the last word and see her eyes narrow in response. I remind myself to cool it here before I get myself and my best friend killed. The strong take, the weak can do nothing to prevent it. Do you need a demonstration of this? I step back and hold the knife between us like a talisman. No, that is not what I want. What I want to know is what you have done to my city. She smiles wickedly. Ash Falls? Our secret place beneath the hole in the sky? Here we are granted access to the power that has been denied us over the long and rolling years. Here we find worshippers by the score, waiting to empower us. Who is we? I ask between gritted teeth. The five of us who gathered into a sacred compact fifty years ago, spilling the blood of those who lived here. We created the Turlerang, the forbidding that keeps our worshippers here and prevents the rest of the world from staying. The names would mean nothing to you. Yourself, Nergal, Supe, Yama, and Tuzcatlipoca? I stumble over the final one, hoping and remembering Danny's pronunciation correctly. A regular league of nations of ancient deities. Her eyes widen. Impressive. You have uncovered a mystery many have not. Now, what is your intention? I want to know what your intentions are, lady. Not the other way around. She smiles again. What intentions do I need? We exist to be worshipped. To feed upon your ignorance and fear, to drink your blood and compel you to do our bidding. You're gods, you see. I know you used to be gods, but your worshippers are long gone. The places you come from don't even recognize you anymore. She laughs. But you are our new flock. My reluctant priest. We will move along you as we desire. We laid the stones for our power half a century ago. Even without Nergal, the Turlerang lives on, though reduced in power for a time. In time he will come forth and reestablish it, she shrugs. If not, 
another will take his place. From this city beneath the hole in the sky, we will once again reach out across the world and restore your kind to its proper obeisance. Ash Falls, private hunting reserve for retired gods. I now understand that vampires and the werewolves are the least of our problems here. I also understand what we have to do to rid ourselves of them once and for all. Time's up. I speak in a commanding voice. Return my friend and go back to where you're from. Her eyes flash that sinister gold again. I will depart. For now. We will meet again. And all you will learn from me then is pain. The glow in her eyes fades away. And Cheryl stumbles forward, coughing and choking. I catch her and hold her close for a moment as she gathers herself. After a moment, we become less aware of our shared fear and more aware of the fact that she is in my arms, half-dressed. And I am still shirtless. She steps away and begins rebuttoning her blouse while staring at the floor. When she is done putting herself back together, she swallows hard and looks me in the eyes. That may be the worst experience I have ever had in my life. I nod, but can't manage to hold her gaze for long. Were you present for most of that? I ask, looking down at the floor myself. She looks over at the wall, breathing to settle herself. It was like I had been shunted off to another part of my mind. I could hear and see, but couldn't control anything. I was so afraid she was going to keep me like that forever. I take a deep breath and look her in the eye. So then, you heard our little conversation. She nods, then looks at the floor. I think she might be blushing. Yes, Brian, I heard. Thank you. I look away, embarrassed, then clear my throat. Well, it isn't important anyway. As long as you're safe. Brian. She places a hand on my arm, and I look at her, surprised. The fact that we are friends does not make what we have any less important. I step away, looking down at the shirt and knife still in my hands. Let's get that hand bandaged before you go to the ER. She's quiet while I perform the procedure, then smiles as I put on the now mutilated t-shirt. Did you catch what she said? She asks. About being weaker because Nergal was gone? She nods. I did. But I'm not sure what we can do about it. I still don't know how Nergal's altar got destroyed in the first place. Much less, how do we go about doing it? She smiles. But now we know what we need to do. First, we need to keep her followers from performing her sacrifice tomorrow night. We'll see. At the very least, we will try to figure out what they are doing tomorrow night. Remember, we would still have to find the other three altars before we could finish with this. She cocks her head at me. You seem to be taking this appearance of a deity pretty calmly, given how much you hate the supernatural. I shrug my shoulders. It was pretty much like going to any other church. She looks startled. To church? How so? I didn't understand what was being said. I got offered something I couldn't have, and I left with more questions than I came with. She smiles, and then punches me in the arm with her uninjured hand. Asshole, she says warmly. He looks down at the huddled figures within their kennels, whimpering from the pain, begging to be released pathetic. No wonder those who came before him would use these werewolves as slaves and fodder to be expended on the battlefield. At least the one fought back before being put down like the dog he was. These other two were worthless. 
their enslavement to his chemical creation meaning nothing. At least their blood could serve some purpose. As he steps outside of the building into the waiting limousine, he feels a brief chill touch his skin. He stops, frozen. He has not noticed changes in temperature in decades. There is no wind blowing, and the climate is not cold for the season. It is almost as if something brushed against him. Ghosts? Even if there are such things, they cannot touch him, in this now immortal body. He alone has empowered dozens of servants to fight and die for him. He alone owns the secret to enslaving the werewolves. He alone knows the secret to destroying the gods themselves. He shakes himself off and slides into the passenger compartment. There is much left to be done, and his presence is no longer required here at the laboratory. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Inheritance in the Ash Falls universe. As always, you can check out the print version on Amazon, as well as other works by Jeremy C. Schofield. Join us next time for more Ash Falls.